The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 67 of The Things We All Carry. Kim is a paramedic out of Minnesota with 10 years of experience. She started training for and qualifying as an EMT during high school, and as soon as she was old enough, she began her career on the ambulance. She has seen more than her fair share of traumas, injuries, and illnesses, and she has the distinct pleasure of being called a true black cloud. Unfortunately, Kim also experienced the horrors of an accident while driving the ambulance on duty and on a call. She shares her experience, recovery, and future plans with me. Kim reached out to me on Messenger and asked to share her story. Turns out we have a mutual friend in the state of Minnesota, and he shared the podcast with her, then also suggested that she be a guest. A huge thanks to Sam from Mind Over Medic for making the connection for us. Go find his page on Instagram, at Mind Over Medic, and give him a follow. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram, at the things we all carry, or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to the show. And today I have Kim. Kim is out of northern Minnesota, and she was kind of put in contact with me by somebody I talked to a while ago. And he, he and I never got to record an episode, which I, I regret because he's a fascinating person. And hopefully he'll come back around and, and want to record with me. But um, so, so a big thank you to Sam up, up there, Mind Over Medic, if you want to find him on Instagram. Uh, but Kim is uh, Kim's been a paramedic for ten years, and she has quite the story to tell. I'm gonna start by letting her just kind of give her family history and then, you know, we'll get into the, the meat and potatoes of it. How you doing, Kim? I'm doing all right. This is something new that I've decided to do. I, I kind of just want to know what was the last song you just heard? Oh, um, oh, I was looking for my phone and my phone is in my hand. Oh, I've done that all the time. The, the most recent time I did it, I, I was holding my hand and I holding the phone in my hand and it was using it as a coaster. I had a drink on top of it and I was walking around looking for my phone. So you, we're, we've all been there. Yeah. So the last song I heard um, is actually Straight and Narrow by Sam Barber. Okay. So I'm going to check it out and I'll have everybody else check it out. I just, I wanted to add something to it and I'm a big music head. And so I, I just wanted to see what people are listening to. Yeah, it's a newer song, and it's kind of been on my playlist for some reason. Awesome. And I keep listening to it. Thank you. It's catchy. So, uh, paramedic for 10 years. I was an EMT for two before that. Started as an EMT when I was 18. Became a medic right before I turned 21. Started at a rural service that was pretty busy, especially with um, 911s. They had a big service area, and uh, we'd transport to hospitals like level two and level one hospitals further further towns away. Um, so it's pretty busy. I've been married for 10 years and I have two kids. They're about to turn eight and six. What was, uh, what was growing up like for you? I have four siblings, two of whom are adopted. Um, parents that uh, are still married, they're about to hit, oh gosh, 36 years, I think at the end of June. You grew up in Minnesota. Yes. 
Um, my dad was transferred from Wisconsin to Minnesota when I was nine. So I've lived in Minnesota longer than Wisconsin. So I guess I should claim it. Okay. What What did mom and dad do for, for livings? Uh, my dad was a pipeline for Enbridge Energy. Um, so he's a mechanic in the pipeline. Uh, retired two years ago now, I think. And my mom became an RN right around the time I became a paramedic. She stayed at home for most of our um, growing up, homeschooled me all the way through 11th grade. My siblings did public school throughout different ages. Um, and then she went back to school, got her LPN, was an LPN for quite a while, and then got her RN, I think, six months after I became a paramedic. That's awesome. That's, that's, that, that's, uh, that's one of those stories that I hear kind of often, actually, that, you know, either mom or dad who's stayed in the house to, to, to help raise kids or, or school kids then goes back and finally gets to do what they want to do. So yes. not that, not that raising you wasn't what, what you wanted, wants. not that raising right. you wasn't <laughs> what you wanted to do, but you, you get the gist of what I was yep. saying. All yep. right, cool. So what, what made you decide you wanted to be a paramedic? Um, when I hit 11th grade in Minnesota, they have what's called post-secondary education option, and that's free two years of college for high school students. And you can go to a community college. And so I went to the community college in 11th grade and ended up needing like just an extra credit or two to fill the year. And so I took a first responder um, group, which is now called emergency medical responder. Um, and I just kind of fell in love with it. And that's what made me decide to go for it. I had a great instructor um, and he really pushed me to go forward. So when you get done with that in 11th grade, what do you what do you walk away with, with just from uh, after high school? Um, well, after 11th grade, I went and took an EMT class at a private ambulance service that I ended up working for and I became a paramedic. Um, so it was like a six or seven month program, became an EMT. And when I graduated high school, I had an associate of arts degree with general classes and then an EMT license. Oh, so that's perfect. Yeah. And so you, you start riding private ambulance right out of high school? Nope. And the service I wanted to work for, you had to be 21. So I went into a volunteer service at the town next over. So it was basic life support, no paramedics. We were volunteer basis. Um, just, and it was pretty slow. They weren't very busy. So you just, you just bide your time until you're 21 yeah. and you're able to do what yeah. you actually want to do. Yeah. So as soon as I finished high school, I enrolled in North Dakota, North Dakota State College of Science. And ended up getting my paramedics through that college. And then it was FM Ambulance that did the training, which is now known as Stanford Ambulance. And then you get your paramedic at, at what point? What year was it you got your paramedic? 2013. So I graduated in December, passed my medics like the month before I turned 21. And they hired me and I just oriented and rode third for a month before I turned 21. Okay, that was so. Basically, I hit the ground running when I turned twenty-one. I was done with orientation and good to go. That's exactly what I was going to ask. Did you just hit the ground ground running, or or was there, (laughs) for lack of a better term, any kind of a break-in period? But I guess that month leading up to being being of age, quote unquote, is your break-in period. Yep. Cool. So, what do you find when you start as a paramedic? How do you find it? Do you enjoy it? What What's it bring? I loved it. It was everything I thought I was going to be. I was labeled a black cloud almost immediately. Um, And I don't want to give away my answer to one of your questions later, but I was given a gift that I carry every day since because of the black cloud that I brought to work. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's a good foreshadowing. So we'll get to, we'll get there in a little bit, right? Yep. So you worked in the private ambulance. How big was the area that you're working in? 
Oh, I don't know how many square mileage we cover. Um, the town that is like we're focused in, it's like 13,000 people. They, I think they ran about 3,500-ish calls a year to 4,000. And so when you say a black cloud, what does being a black cloud mean on a private ambulance? Out of curiosity. If you're my, if you're my partner, you could expect to run and run and run and have it be very critical calls. Okay. So you, you ran yeah. the gamut of stuff. Yeah. So that first month when I was on my own with an EMT partner, six out of the first eight patients, like the first two shifts I was on, uh, they were either actively dying or like, yeah, it was, they were very critical calls. Like I couldn't even believe to think that's how my career would start. I mean, you're, you're 21 years old. You're, you're, yeah. you're, I mean, for all intents and purposes, you're a kid and now right. you're, now you're, you're in charge of, of, life and death. Right. So to yeah, speak. Like, now, granted, we're not in charge of life and death. We, we're we're right. in charge of doing our jobs to the best of our abilities and, and let science flesh it out at that point. But yeah, what, do, how but do you have the mental process of understanding that and like thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't save this person's life. I didn't have that at that time. I don't think it, it's not like I was messed up or like became super, I didn't get PTSD or anything like that at that point. But like, you just don't have that mental process going into it being brand new that young. And especially, I mean, I was raised in a very good Christian, grew up going to church. I was homeschooled most of my life. So, I mean, I was pretty naive and pretty innocent. And in fact, um, everyone always jokes about how innocent I was coming into it and how much EMS changed me because of like, not that I'm a horrible person or anything now, but I'm just not naive anymore. And I very much was when I started. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask that question. You know, what's that like for for a twenty one year old? I I think I, I don't hide the see the the fact that I started this job late in life, so I had a lot of life experience coming into the job, right. and I, you know, not seen a lot of death, but I knew what death was, and I and it had touched mm -hmm. me in in some manner throughout my life. But for a twenty one year old, that's that's kind of a shocking experience, I'd imagine. The closest death that I had to me before joining EMS was um, my grandpa died when I was two, I think. So, like, I hadn't even heard, I don't even remember, I barely remember him, but I never had an experience of, like, going to a funeral, really, even, or experiencing someone dying before going into those situations in EMS. So, I, it was all very new. So, when you think back to that first month or two, and you're running calls, and you're running critical calls, and you're, as as you said, kind of in charge of life and death, um, is there anything that stands out to you in that time frame? Uh, there's a lot of gunshots. Um, I had a lot of self-inflicted gunshots. Um, and it was just, I was just kind of shocked that, like, you see it in the movies, but, like, to see it in real life, I mean, I can't even explain it to somebody who hasn't seen it before. So with the private ambulance, I, I don't know. I'll be very honest. I'm, I'm, I'm ignorant to, to much of how a private ambulance service is run. So is there any offering of, of, you know, let's talk about this, a hot wash, as we call it in the fire service? Um, from the service, no. The county provided, uh, I can't even think of the name of what they're called right now. There was a debriefing. You're supposed to do them within 48 hours of the incident. Is it like SISM? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep, exactly. Um, they're not very helpful, in my opinion. They basically just tell you, uh, work out and eat better and you'll be fine. <laughs> Sounds, sounds about right. That kind of covers the, covers what the experiences of, of what I've yeah. heard and what I've been through. Yeah. 
And in fact, I remember specifically, this was a couple of years into my career, I had uh, an attempted murder-suicide. It was a dad, um, a young dad and his eight-year-old son. And he tried, he attempted to kill his son and then killed himself. And then the son laid there for 12 hours. And when we got there, he was still alive. And I was pregnant at the time, and I was the one running the call. Now, granted, there was more of the, sur- of the ambulance service members that I worked with there, but I was the one that took control. And afterwards, I remember one of the guys going, what in the world are we doing having the only mom and the only pregnant mom running this call for? And no one had an answer, but I'm just like, well, I was the one that stepped up, and I was fine. I wasn't fine. That call ended up screwing me up pretty good. Um, even though he lived, I just couldn't imagine doing that to your son. Um, and that one ended up throwing me off for like two years. It came up two years later. I just shoved it down. But there was a debriefing after that. And my boss, he, he was uh, a supervisor at the time. He was on the call. And it was like kind of an avoidant situation. Like we just, nobody talked about it. Um, nobody talked about it. There's a debriefing, I think, 72 hours later. It was completely pointless. It did nothing. Um, but at the time, like this was, I don't know, eight or seven or eight years ago. So like there was no offering for any kind of therapy or anything. It was, I, in fact, I still had another, that was probably early on in the shift. So I still had another, you know, 24, 36 hours to go. And, and we all stayed and worked. We didn't get sent home or didn't get asked, are you okay to stay? Yeah, that's, you, you, you know, you do a debrief 72 hours later and it's kind of, I don't want to say it's pointless, but it's damn near pointless. Right. It is. <laughs> so you said that that, that call comes back to you a couple of years later. So how does that come back to you? Um, I was just really angry and uh, I don't remember what even started it, but my husband and I were having an argument about something. He knew I was off and I don't remember how it happened, but it just, I word vomited and just started bawling. And I was like this, I'm not okay from this. And even then, I didn't do anything about it. I talked to my mother-in-law, who is has had been an RN, career RN. She was like in administration. I talked to her for probably a couple hours that night. And my husband and her just did frequent check-ins daily and just kind of got me through that episode. And after that, I, I haven't had any issues since with that call. But like even then, I'm, it's crazy to think like nobody said go to therapy or I didn't even think to do something about it, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, so you just carry on, you, you, you have, yeah. you just have some emotions, just the, the damn broke for lack of a better word. And, and, yep. and you, you let some out and then you just, you closed it back up. Yeah. And you just go on, going on about your business at that point, I assume. Yep. Okay. So does, do, do any other calls hit you like that throughout your career? Nope. I, there's none other that I, I mean, I had, I mean, I was, I think three years and for three years running, I was on every single gunshot in our county. And um, I was been on a couple stabbings, things like that. And none of them ever really, I never had any issues with those. I don't know if it was because I was pregnant at the time of that accident or like, you know, I, I can't, can't explain why it happened with that call and nothing else. But I never really had any other issues with any other calls. So I got promoted to a supervisor. Um, I was in 2000, so I was pregnant in 2017. I think it was about 2019 that I got promoted to a supervisor. Um, what does supervisor mean? What do you, what does, what comes with the supervisor on a private ambulance? 
Yeah. So on the service, the supervisor at the time, we did week on, two weeks off rotation. So our phone that we carry, like our just our normal cell phones, had a phone number that would be forwarded to our phone. And any hospital that wanted to call this service for a transfer uh, would call that number. So you could be getting 30, 40 phone calls a day. And also, um, not just a day, like it's 24-7, a week, a week on for 24-7. So you're um, scheduling transfers, doing things like that. You're also in the office um, just doing administrative work and then backing up the crews as needed. You know, if they go out on a critical call. You respond and help out, um, respond to accidents and help be a resource on accidents, things like that. Um, and also as a supervisor for the county or deputy coroner at the time um, where you're on call for all the deaths in the county and deciding if they need an autopsy or not, being in contact with the coroner. Okay. So there's so, a gamut of different things. Right. I was going to say, so just some additional tasks and, and, and yeah. added stressors. Yes. All for right, not so, very much money. So... <laughs> How how does it change for you? Obviously, the job kind of changes for you, but does it does the personnel or the personality side of the job change for you once you're promoted? Uh, no. So at the service, the supervisors are in the office hanging out with the crew. So it's all we're all hanging out. Um, so there's the hierarchy of it is there's the owner, um, and then the director of operations, and then there is myself and another supervisor. So the director of operations, the other supervisor, and myself would rotate every third week on call. The owner was just there or not there, whatever he wanted to do. Okay. So how does the, how does time progress for you as a supervisor? Um, so yeah, I was, I believe, three years I worked as a supervisor. I loved the job. Um, it was super fun got along great with the other two that I worked with and loved the crews. I loved being a resource for them. I ended up becoming the education coordinator. So this service offers all the training and all the CEUs you could need to research your license or your certificate. And um, so I was the one coordinating that. I did a lot of training. Uh, I love teaching people. And then um, I was often a preceptor for like paramedics students um, as they were going through paramedic school. Um, so that was how my three years were filled. I just was living day to day. Once you become a supervisor, if you're not on call, you just work Monday through Thursday, and then you get to go home at night, which was great because I had young kids, um, and I enjoyed it. I really liked it. And then uh, I was in an accident. Yeah, and this is what you reached out to me about, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So set the stage. What's going on that day? So June 8th of 2021. Uh, I was the supervisor on call. It was a Tuesday. I had started my on-call shift that Monday. So I'd already been on call for 24 hours. Our shift change was at 9 a.m. And um, a paramedic that was on shift who was one of, was my best friends. Um, they weren't even, yeah, they were married. They were married at the time. Duh. <laughs> anyway, my best friend's husband. And then I was, he and I, before I became a supervisor, had been shift partners. So he was like one of my best friends um, at the house. And um, anyway, he was uh, up for call. And his partner, his EMT partner, was there. And the address came out as a mutual aid call for a uh, neighboring service. It wasn't at our service area. They were busy on a different call. And so they needed help. And she recognized the address. The EMT partner recognized the address as her nephew. And um, we had had an experience with this young gentleman before um, where 
the same neighboring service needed mutual aid. Our crew went and it was a shit show of a call and he was very critical. He's got an extensive medical history. And so I looked at her, I saw the panic in her face and I said, you don't need to go, I'll go for you. And she like, you could see the relief instantly. She didn't want to go because it sounded like it was critical. I don't remember it came out as a seizure or what it came out for, um, but it sounded like it could be bad and I didn't want her to see that. So um, my part or my the paramedic and I, you know, went out and um, this is going to be kind of, it kind of shows the humor in EMS was there's a student standing there who was starting for the day. And we ran out quick and got in the truck and took off quick. And we were, you know, our, we were laughing because we don't usually get to be partners anymore. And we were excited to run a call together and we escaped without the students. And that will come into play later um, because I was happy she wasn't there. Um, but anyway, so he drove to the call and we were joking about his diabetic feet and how he could tell his sugar got high because his feet would go numb. And we were just laughing and having a great time like we normally do. And got so, to the call. so by the way, that, that also highlights EMT humor because you're sitting there laughing about his diabetes and, and right. the symptoms of such. On the way to this critical call. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, we got to the call. There's first responders there. One of the first responders um, is a paramedic who also works at the service that we're from. Um, she just volunteers for this when she's not working. Got in there. Um, he was all right. He wasn't critical. I mean, he was, uh, I don't want to talk too much about it because it's hippo, whatever. I don't want to get in trouble. Um, but we got him loaded into the truck and my partner hopped in the back and I went around and was kind of, I chatted with that paramedic for two seconds, said hi and said, all right, well, I'm headed out. And I had no idea where we were since it wasn't our service area. So I typed in the address into my phone GPS, stuck my phone in the cup holder so I could hear it, tell me where to go and um, got on our way to the hospital. Uh, we were not going lights and sirens. I know that was a big rumor about whether we were or not afterwards, whatever. But um, got out onto the road. He poked his head up, asked for a piece of paper. I figured he was typing his report and filling something out. Handed it back to him. Clear, sunny day. No, not a cloud in the sky. It was beautiful weather. Um, and then we got T-boned by a dump truck on the passenger side. And I unfortunately stayed awake through the whole thing. I wish I would have lost consciousness and didn't remember, but I remember every second now. And we ended up uh, basically getting spun around so that we were facing the way we came and we were in the opposite corner ditch. Um, now, was this, a, this was obviously at an intersection, I, I would assume. Yep, yep. Yep, we got T-boned at an intersection. I did not see an intersection. Uh, we were on a rural road, and come to find out later, I had seen a stop sign out of the corner of my eye, but there was no, I, I, it didn't even register that it would be a stop sign for me based on the positioning of it. And that was like right before I, we got hit. And come to find out later, um, the stop ahead sign, you couldn't even see. We have a picture of it. Um, my dad and my husband went back and took pictures of everything uh, for my defense. And it was so brushed over and untaken care of that you couldn't even see the stop ahead sign. And the stop sign was moved. And the rumor is, no one, the county will never admit this. The rumor is it was moved farther into the ditch because it kept getting hit by the plow truck and drunk drivers. So they just moved it instead of enforcing some, I don't know. Um, and the intersection that the dump truck came from, 
if you look at the picture, like you couldn't really tell. It looked like there was a T, like the other side that I didn't get hit from, like they would have to stop. And the the way the dump truck came from would have been blind to me. Um, so there was really no warning. I wasn't speeding. I was, I've been cleared of all criminal charges because, um, you know, I wasn't on my phone. It, w- it was nothing. Um, it was just a pure accident. And um, yeah, so I was going about, I think 60 miles an hour. I think he said he was probably going about 55-ish. So, I mean, it was highway speeds. T-bone on the passenger side. My partner was not buckled. Our our patient was uh, secured to the stretcher as as patients should be. Um, But anyway, we ended up in the opposite corner facing the way we were coming. And then the dump truck ended up upright um, in, in the same corner as us. But mind you, there was an accident two and a half, three weeks before ours with a DNR officer, same intersection, and they changed nothing about it. So that was kind of an uproar for everybody, but um, it is what it is. So anyway, um, where, do, where does the ambulance, where does the dump truck strike the ambulance? We got struck right on the sliding door of the okay. passenger side. So, um, yeah, it hit like right behind the front passenger door. So the box. Yep. Got hit in the box. Um, and I remember when I put my phone in the cup holder, I put my duty radio in the cup holder, which I warn all of you that are listening to keep it on your belt because it bit me in the butt. Um, our truck radio, when we came to a stop, I, we were out rural. I had no idea if anyone was around or if anyone was passing and seen it. And um, I went to call in to dispatch and the truck radio was dead. And I couldn't find my phone and radio because I put them in the cup holder. Um, I I uh, couldn't get out of my seatbelt. It it locked. Obviously, the airbags had gone off, so I was able to get my trauma shears and cut myself out and drop to the because we were hanging on that. So it was driver side down. So our truck was on its side, driver side down. Um, so I cut myself out, dropped to the bottom, and kind of stood up and just surveyed. I looked through the back window to the back compartment and I couldn't see anything. I yelled and nobody answered. And I was looking around trying to find my radio or my phone and I ended up finding them like behind the driver's seat, whatever. I couldn't reach my phone. I was finally able to get my radio and thankfully that was still alive and I radioed into dispatch that we had been hit and it was instant chaos, like controlled chaos. Um, I remember one of my uh, officer friends said there's a lot of officers in dispatch at the time of the accident, heard my voice over the radio, and they all found out for sure how fast their squads went that day. And everyone in the county came, um, multiple ambulance services. The service that we work for sent out everyone. Um, the first responders that were on scene with us on the call, they responded. Um, the service that had called for mutual aid responded. Uh, cause they had cleared their call and then the server, another server, neighboring service ended up coming and helping too. Um, and then we had two helicopters land and, um, yeah. Uh, so I was able to, once I called into dispatch, I was able to crawl up through the passenger window. I honestly have no idea, pure adrenaline. I was able to pull myself up and crawl out. And I stood up on the on the side of the truck, and there's an older gentleman there. Um, I wish I knew his name because I'd call him and thank him. 
but he helped me down. I saw, I could see the dump truck from where I was standing. And I saw that the dump truck driver was moving and someone was at his side. And so I jumped down and I mean, at this point, I didn't even feel anything. I didn't, they tr- truly, when they say that people at accidents don't feel anything, their adrenaline's running. I could have had a broken neck and not known, I think. And so I was trying to get into the back of the truck. I couldn't get in. I was scared to even see what was in there. And I truly think it was probably best that I didn't get those doors open because from knowing now they were both dead in there, there would have been nothing that I could have done to save either one of them. And I think it was my brain telling me or just not letting me see that. Now, they ended up having to cut the ambulance open to even get in there. So there's no way I could have got it and in there myself. Um, But now um, a lady came up to me forced me to sit on the back of somebody's tailgate and to wait. And that's when the ambulances started showing up and trying to take care of us. So I just kept telling everyone, go take care of them. I'm fine. I'm fine. And my best friend, who is also a paramedic, showed up on scene. I was her preceptor for school. So this, you know, is all coming, you know, it's just crazy how it all comes around. Um, But she ended up by my side and didn't leave it. And a couple of the officers who I've worked my career with um, stayed with me the whole time too. And um, at that time, my boss, the director of operations walked up and said, you need to go to the hospital. And I said, how is he? And I said his name, but I don't want to say it on here. Um, and she said, I don't know. And I looked her straight in the eye and I said, you're lying to me. And she goes, you're right. He's dead. And I just remember screaming and her pulling me into a huge hug. And <laughs> sorry. You're okay. Take your time. Uh, and she told me, you know, let's pull it together. This is for later. And you need to go to the hospital. Um, I wouldn't leave. I wanted to stay until he was um, gotten out. Um, but nobody would let me. Rightly so. I was just in a fatal accident. And they always say, you know, treat someone who's been in a fatal accident like, you know, they're going to die too, basically. And... um the dump truck driver ended up being flown to um, a level one trauma center that's closest to our town. And he ended up being okay. I know that he had a lot of serious injuries and it was questionable if he was going to live, but he ended up living and being okay. And I got brought, my best friend and another really good friend brought me to the um, hospital in our town and I ended up staying overnight. I had elevated troponin. Uh, I think just because of the trauma, there was nothing actually wrong. My troponin was elevated, I believe, and then I had a shoulder injury, and um, I just had a lot of scrapes, a lot of glass embedded in me, and I ended up with some stitches, and I just looked nasty. <laughs> so, yeah. So you find out on scene that, that, that your partner was killed. Yes. Do you find out that the patient was also killed on scene, or does that come later? Uh, I knew he was just from what I saw on scene, and I don't want to be too graphic, but um, he was hanging, part of him was hanging out of a window, um, and I knew, I just knew, I didn't even ask because I knew that he was gone too. Uh, yeah. It was confirmed at the hospital. Okay. But. So how long do you stay at the hospital? I stayed overnight. Oh, and before I forget, the other thing that was pretty crappy for my husband 
he was at work. This is at 1030 in the morning. He'd gone to work. Um, and the other supervisor that I worked with was on scene. And I said, somebody needs to call Michael. Somebody needs to call Michael. He needs to know. And she called him and said, Kim's been in an accident. It's not good. And hung up. And that's it. That's all he got. That's the wrong thing to do. It's if you're listening, very, you need to give somebody this, this this announcement. This is the wrong thing to do. Very much so the wrong thing to do. Yeah. And so he was like instantly like, oh, my gosh, what happened? Like, is she even alive? And uh, so then the director of operations, my boss, texted him and said, she's okay. Uh, her partner's dead. She needs you. Go to the hospital. And so he and he got a hold of my mom, who is a house supervisor at this hospital, and his mom, who ended up coming and taking my kids and my dad, and then they spread the word to all of our siblings. And my mom and husband met me at the hospital. They walked into the garage. That's the first thing I remember seeing when the back doors were open was them standing there staring at me like I was dead, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I'm sure I looked a mess. I, my, I still have scars on my face and... I was bloody everywhere and got brought into the hospital and it was a hop in ER that day. Like there's a stroke. There is, it's a small hospital, 10 beds, and they were running like crazy, but you know, they ended up designating one of the best RNs they could have to me. And, um, yeah, I ended up staying overnight. I got admitted to med search because of the elevated troponin. Um, and just, um, they watched me make sure everything that was okay. At the time, the um, cooler, the morgue cooler, was at the hospital. And so the next morning, they were going to be bringing my partner down for autopsy. And you know how they do the whole, like, not parade, but, like, they get everyone and anyone they can with lights and everything and just bring him down as a show of honor. Um, so they had a big, um, big thing that they were going to do at the morgue entrance where they had all the, all the staff and other services standing there. Um, to have him be pushed through a, a row of people. And I wanted to go down there. And this is like right during the middle of COVID. And one of the hospital administration was like, yeah, you, you can't go down there. The, you know, you can't go outside. You're admitted to the hospital. And I like instantly started panicking. And my mom, being the bulldog that she is, um, she's like, well, that's unfortunate because we're going. You can either discharge her and we'll take her home after or you can just be okay with it and let it slide, but we're going out there. And like literally as my mom and husband were pushing me out in a wheelchair, she was nipping at their heels like, this is against hospital policy. And it's just like, whatever. And my mom since was literally like, no, just walk away. We're leaving. Have her discharge papers on the bed. And uh, we went out there and we were part of the procession to get him down or to get him to the ambulance where he was going to take his ride to the um, coroner's office in Ramsey. And then after that, I gathered my things from the hospital. My mom and husband did brought me to my parents' house because my kids were still at my house. They were going to be leaving um, to go play with their cousins for a few days until I could, you know, function. And um, they came to see me at my parents' house before they left. And they were like, you could tell they were afraid to touch me. They've never even seen me like. And I've never seen me cut up and bruised and looking like I was looking. So they ended up giving me a hug and you could tell they were scared and they didn't know what was going to happen. But they, all they remember is going to play with their cousins for five or six days or whatever it was. And me being all right when they came back, I was still pretty bruised and cut up. But um, 
I hope that's all they remember of it. But anyway. So what else? Over the next few days, what what happens? What goes through your mind? What 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 kind of administrative crap do you have to deal with? What kind of legal stuff do you have to deal with? What are the yeah, what's the so, reaction from the from the ambulance company? All of that. What what happens? Yeah, so like I said, it was my best friend's husband who died. Um and she ended up coming to my parents' house and sitting with me with one of our other good friends. And while I was laying there, I'd literally just fallen asleep. And my husband woke me up and said, come on, we're going to counseling. And I was like, no, I'm not going to counseling. Like, I'm just going to lay here and sleep and not eat and be miserable. And he literally picked me up off the couch, put me in the car, and drove me to a counselor's office. Um, This counselor was recommended by um, some first responders in the area for her specializing in basically us in first responders, which now is, I look back, and that's like pretty much a joke. She she was the biggest waste of my time and it was just horrible I don't even really remember like the first session my husband sat with me and she basically talked to him and I just stared off into space crying and not I don't remember what she said at all um but I started therapy that day and continued to go I think twice a week for a while um but to back up the uh, legal portion of it the as soon as I got to the hospital there's a trooper ready to interview me and Again, my mom being the bulldog that she is, she was like, you're not going to get in there. Like, we need to talk to a lawyer. Um, we need to figure this out. Now, the trooper that was there, she's an amazing person. She's got slack, sore for a part in this accident and basically lost her job. Whole nother story. If you want to look it up, her name's Tessa Johnson. Um, but she was an amazing um, person to have in my corner. And she, all she did that day was I was laying in the um, ER bed and she had to take my statement. And she said, the sooner you can do it, the better, because it's like, you're not hiding anything. And um, so she recorded my statement in the hospital. And that was about it legally for the first little while. After we did the whole processional for the autopsy, after I went to therapy, then the planning of the funeral started. And, um, the honor guard came in. I don't know if your state has honor guard, um, but it's they basically take care of um, active duty death and the funeral costs and planning the funeral and doing all of that for the family. Um, so I participated in that with my best friend. I shoved everything down and just was there to support her. You know, we're at the or at the flower, the florist, picking out flowers. We're planning all that. We're meeting with the pastor that's going to do the funeral. And all this time, I'm thinking, like, what's going to happen to me? Um, it sounds super selfish, but I was super afraid. You know, two people died, and you all you see the people getting cold or you know hit with manslaughter, that type of thing. And all I could think of was, I'm going to prison for the rest of my life for this accident that I had no control over. Like. I was driving and I was at fault because technically I ran the stop sign. So I was scared shitless of what was going to happen. And there was absolutely no support whatsoever from the honor guard, from the ambulance service I worked for. Like, yeah, I got the, are you doing okay? Questions from the ambulance service I worked for, but they didn't fight for me to have any kind of support. They didn't ask about who I would, you know, not that they probably can ask about counseling. I don't know if there's any legality to them asking about that, but they didn't help me at all. The honor guard didn't help me at all. 
I had a couple people that I had met through the business of EMS that connected me with other survivors of accidents. And that was like the key thing that I think helped me a lot at the time was talking to people that survived the same thing and their partners didn't. And that's one thing that I hope someday I can help change because people that survive this need just as much support as the people whose family members died. Um, you know, it's, it's critical at that time. Like that's when people commit suicide, especially if they don't have support. Thankfully, I have a great husband. I have a great family. They were there for me. My in-laws are all there for me. But not everyone has that. And if you don't have that, I don't know what you do at that point. Hey, guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount, and I appreciate all of you. I have one request, though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. I ended up on Workman's Comp. and little I know nothing about Workman's Comp. I'd never even filed a Workman's Comp thing before this day. And um, they're supposed to give you a QRC, which it's like quality. I can't remember what it stands for, but it's somebody who's in your corner working for the state and workman's comp and trying to coordinate everything and telling you what you get and what you don't get and things like that. First of all, that's, that's was, such a conflict of interest to say they're working for you and workman's comp because workman's comp is not working for you. Well, they're not hired by workman's comp. Workman's comp has to appoint you one. So okay. they have... I found this out afterwards. Workman's Comp has specific ones they like to work with. Mm -hmm. Of course they do because then they're going to, you know, have, you know, someone who can try and advocate for them as well. You can pick a different one. And I didn't know that. I ended up with a great one. So I got lucky that way. But I had no idea what, how to do any of this. So there should be like something to tell people the process. You know, there should be someone to say, hire a Workman's Comp lawyer, someone who, knows workman's comp inside and out so you get what you what you should get and they can help you through the process there's just so much that needs to be done differently because there's nothing for the survivors and we found that out the hard way the really hard way and now looking back it's super frustrating and i hope that someday i can figure out this my husband and i's main one of our main goals that we've been talking about is trying to figure out how to start this and how to how to get a ball rolling where unfortunately these accidents are going to keep happening, but people that are in them need the support and the, the directions of how to make it through. So you guys are trying to work on, on, on kind of a, a guidance or what are you trying to work on? It's all very, a, a very new thought process. It's been a crazy two years. But one thing I told Sam, who you mentioned in the beginning, was I want to see something good come from this situation. A lot of bad came from it. A lot of hurt came from it. And I want to see something good. And so uh, Michael and I, my husband, are trying to just starting to dip our toes in the water of trying to figure out what to do with the information that we have, whether that's to go to the honor guard and say, hey, we need to start a program that stems from you guys, where when you're responding to these people who need funerals planned, you have someone else responding to the person who needs the support because they just lived through this traumatic accident. And um, I don't know if it's that, if it's, I, I, it's all new. I'm not sure what we're going to do with it yet, but we're 
just dipping our toes in the water of trying to figure it out. So then back to you, you said it's been two years. Yeah, it'll be two years on Thursday since oh, the accident. That's, that's ironic that we're recording this close right. to the... <laughs> I did, yeah, it didn't even register with me. Um, yeah. So what kind of steps have you taken in the in the intervening two years? Well, I guess I'll go into like what happened. So I went on workman's comp. Um, obviously, the day of the accident, I... Um, got a lot of support not support but like I got a lot of check-ins like hope everything's okay you know I gotta I miss you text those kinds of things from the the management group I was working with um and uh look forward to having you back that type of thing so obviously I work once called from June 8th until the end of August I got cleared to go back and during that time I was going to counseling I believe two times a week and when I say counseling it was like she was kind of a, I don't want to be rude on this podcast, but she's kind of a quack. And she said she specialized in first responders, but she really did nothing to help me. She tried to tell me like different ways to cope, but it wasn't like that. Like I told her, I like, I love to run. I love to listen to music. So she just like, well, go do that. And so that's what I did. And I mean, that does help me. If I'm having a hard day, I go out and run and listen to music and cry my eyes out. Um, but a lot of times it was just her asking me how the legal process was going. And like, she was super invested on like the legal process, not on how my, how I was handling things emotionally and mentally. She just wanted to know what was going to happen legally. And I don't know why I stayed with her as long as I did. I just, that's who I started with and I never even crossed her mind to try and find a better fit. So just know if you ever go through something like this, you can find somebody that has a better fit with you. But anyway, so I ended up going back to work end of August. I think it was like August 31st. And while I had been gone, they hired another supervisor uh, to kind of fill the absence. And we were going to work four supervisors and be on call every fourth week instead of every third. Uh, I knew who this guy was. He had worked for the service casually as a, a ground medic. He his critical care flight experience. Uh, so they hired him on as a supervisor. Um, and when I came back at the end of August, I hit the ground running. I took my supervisor shifts back. I wanted to be busy. I felt like I was doing okay. Like at home, my life was okay. I was still having trouble like disassociating and getting like super overwhelmed. Um, but I was managing okay. And the doctor and I both felt like I could go back to work and do all right. And when I got back to work, I fell back into like, I think, you know, I felt good. I thought that I was in my element. I was staying busy. But for me, pushing everything down and staying busy isn't the best choice. Like I got to, looking back now, um, it wasn't the best choice to jump in head first and just keep going. Um, so... Anyway, I ended up becoming really good friends with this guy that they hired as a supervisor. We were like two peas in a pod. Um, and we both had like the same mind, you know, same thought process. We were both like the same kind of paramedic. We did things the same way um, and whatnot. And I thought things were going really well. Right before I came back, they had posted on our communication app that they were raising the salary rate or not salary, the hourly rate for all the staff, which ended up putting them at 
$5,000 over what my salary was. And so I texted my boss. I was like, so are we going to talk about like what the supervisor, like what my salary is going to go to? And she goes, oh, we'll talk about it when you're in the office. And I was like, okay, because I'm not doing this job for less money than I could be making on the truck. That's just stupid. And um, so during when I got back, we were all in the office chatting. The owner was there. The director was there. The two other supervisors. And I brought it up. I was like, okay, so this is a super cool plan. Like, you're going to pay medics more money so we can retain people. We can hire more people. But what are you going to pay the supervisors? Like, we can't work for less money. And they all just kind of like gave me a quiet blank stare. And they're like, well, we should have talked to you before we made this idea a thing. But we want to prove that this this idea will work. So we agreed to just keep our salaries as is for a while. And I was like, well, okay. But do you know how long a while is? And they didn't really have an answer for me. And I got the promise of a back pay bonus so that when my salary did get upgraded, I would get back pay to, you know, make up for what I had lost during this time. So I was like, all right, that'll work. Well, in my husband and I's conversations, we decided to try it till November. And if they don't bring it up till November, then I'll bring it up. And um, so end of November of 2021, I went to my boss and was like, all right, it's been, well, from August to November, I've worked for less money than I could be making on the truck. And now it's time, like, we're keeping people. We've hired a couple people. It's time to raise my pay. This is a hard job. It's a lot of time. And I, you know, we deserve the money that we're due. And they offered me 70000 which was 5000 more. So I could work the truck and pick up an overtime shift and easily make more than that, you know? And so I was like, well, I'm, that's, I kind of argued with her. I said, this isn't what I want to, you know, be paid to do this job. This is an intense job and we put in a lot of hours a lot of work and if I can make more money on the truck that's what I'm going to do and so then we ended up it was a long drawn out process ended up settling at 75,000 which ironically after three years of supervisor experience that's what I finally drug out of them they just hired a new supervisor and started them out at 75,000 so I'm glad I worked so hard for that but anyway um yeah so finally, I agreed on 75 in December. Uh, never did get the back pay bonus, though. So that was cool. Um, but during all of this, like that other supervisor, gentleman, and I, um, you know, we worked well together. There's a couple times where we had been trying to change the process of something and it wouldn't, they'd say no. Or it was as simple as I wanted to change the layout of our are like uh, I wanted to bring our stock supplies out to the garage so the crews didn't have to walk so far to get it in the middle of the night got told no on that and we were just kind of venting one day about how like anything we try to change it doesn't like we're not allowed to do that and it was pretty equal we were both we were by ourselves in a garage no one behind like I wouldn't do that in front of crew members I wouldn't undermine the boss in front of crew members but we were just venting Neither one of us said anything horrible, but what happened was, little did I know, this other supervisor was running to the boss and changing everything I said and, like, twisting my words to where he even told her it was in front of crew members and I was just bad-mouthing her like crazy in front of everybody. And this is the one you thought you were friends with? Yeah, yeah. Turns out he was very manipulative and changed my whole career there. So... Before the accident, I had been told that I was going to be the next director. When the current one retired, I would take the spot. 
she was to be training me, being my mentor, like through this whole process. That's what the owner and her agreed on. She's going to be my mentor. Show me how to do the job. And when she retires, I'll just step in and take it. And we had a, I had a conversation with the owner one time. He goes, you know, you're super excited to run as the director for me. But what I want you to think about, he says, is I'll be ready for retirement when she is. So I want you to think about taking my seat and buying the company. He said, I know that you would be really good at it. And I just was like, I kind of like, well, that sounds crazy. Like, I don't know if we're, we're the type to own a business, my husband and I, but like, I'll definitely think about it. So now looking back, I remember a specific conversation with a supervisor who I thought I was friends with. Um, he asked me if I would ever think about buying the company with him. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Like, I'm not really a business owner. And he goes, well, I heard that it was offered to you and was kind of like weird about it. And after that conversation, the dynamics kind of changed for me at that company. There was starting to be, I could feel like, you know how you just feel like this, the director and I, we had worked together my whole career there. She was a truck medic when I started. And so we have the background, we've grown a relationship and we have, you know, she's my mentor at this time. And all of a sudden I'm getting like this wedge between us. And it was super weird. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't see that he was the problem and that he was lying about me until later um, when I'll get to it in a little bit because I'm still a little bit of story in between. But uh, when she brought up, brought up the story about us in the garage and her version of it was completely different than what happened, I knew that he was the problem. Um, but anyway, that's for a little bit later. But so this was probably around mid-December. Uh, I was a supervisor. There was COVID breaking out through the office. Like the staff were just dropping one by one. The director got COVID and there's like no staff to work. So I worked, gosh, I don't even remember how many days in a row it was. I think it was like 10 or 12 uh, where I was a supervisor and trying to fill the truck and help the, help the crews survive. And um, I had... I was planning on working um, a Friday. And during this whole time that I was working so much, I, the supervisor, this gentleman, his wife does EMDR training. And I'd heard very little about EMDR except for one story that really stuck out to me where it was an officer involved shooting. The one that lived was just really rough and did EMDR and was able to go back to work and be successful. And so that piqued my interest. And I was on depression meds. I think I was on Effexor at the time. I was on a low dose, so it's not like I was even maxed out, but I didn't want to be stuck on meds for the rest of my life. And my therapy was doing nothing. And so I talked to my husband. I was like, I think I'm going to try and figure out what this EMDR therapy is. And so I, while I was working all those days in a row, I was able to squeak in a dinner with this other supervisor to ask him about EMDR and if he thought his wife would be able to connect you with someone. I didn't want her to do it because I work with him. But I, I thought maybe she would know somebody else. And during that conversation, I still hadn't realized what a snake this guy was. And I was talking and I was like, you know, I'm just, it's been rough. I, I'm depressed. I'm on meds. I'm doing therapy. And it's just not working. I said, I'm not suicidal, but I need to do something or I'm going to, you know, just keep going downhill. I said, I've been very open. Michael and I have very open communication and we'd like to try EMDR. He turned around and left at dinner, and I found out later, told my boss that I'm suicidal and I need to be taken off the schedule right away or I'm just going to kill myself. 
and it is what it is now. But the the way I found out about him telling her was on January 13th, I was supposed to work the truck that day. I said I would help help cover the truck that day, but I had a workman's comp follow-up doctor appointment in the morning, so I would come in after. And my boss is like, oh, you've been working so many days in a row. Just take the day off and come back on Monday. You'll be fine. We don't need you to cover. Well, little did I know, I got to the workman's comp appointment and there was a letter waiting for me from her saying that she wrote it to my QRC and said, I'm suicidal. I'm angry. I'm not the person I am anymore. And I can't be working during this. And uh, not the person I was before the accident, I mean. And so she knew I was going to go into this appointment and be taken off the schedule, but she didn't want to tell me anything about it or didn't want to say, hey, I see you're struggling. What can we do about it? You know, just basically had the QRC be the bad guy and slap me in the face with this letter and put me back on workforce comp. And the crew members that I talked to about, like those two weeks that I was working before that, we were having a blast. Like we were laughing. It was the best I'd felt in a long time. I was partners. We were laughing and joking. And it was literally the best I'd felt in a long time. And so to, when I got hit with that letter, Michael was sitting next to me. They asked for Michael to come to the appointment. And I just looked at him and I started bawling. And I was like, I don't even know what to do at this point. Like, how am I supposed to be the person I was before the accident? How, how does that happen? And he looked at me and he goes, it doesn't. You're not going to be. And so I ended up getting put back on workman's comp, which did end up working out in my favor because it took a couple of weeks, but the QRC was able to uh, establish me with an EMDR therapist. She stopped the regular therapy I was doing and found an EMDR therapist who ended up just changing my world. Um, at the beginning, we didn't start EMDR right away. Uh, she kind of gave me like, we got to know each other. And she taught me coping mechanisms because if you ever do EMDR, it's like the worst, most intense thing you'll ever go through besides the traumatic thing itself. Um, and so she was teaching me the coping mechanisms of how to deal with it before we did it. So in a couple weeks of that, uh, one thing that she taught me that I still use to this day is, I think she called it like a trauma box or something like that, where you picture like this box, whatever kind of box you want in your mind. And if you're having a time where like the flashbacks and everything are just running at you and you don't have time to process it right then or you can't process it where you are, wrap them all up in a ball, throw them in the box, shut the box and put it on the shelf. And then when you are somewhere where you can process that, pull the box down and open it and let it all come out to process. I have a very, very vivid imagination. So like I just have like a running movie in my head and if I throw them in that box, it shuts the movie off. And if I take that box out, it'll start playing right where it left off. And um, so she taught me how to do that because that was very pivotal or very needed because when you're doing EMDR, you basically run everything in your mind and play everything over and over and over. And at the end of the session, she tells you to wrap everything up in a ball, throw it in the box and throw it on the shelf until we meet again. And it's an amazing Amazing, but intense, horrible experience at the same time. So how long do you do EMDR for? I did it eight sessions, so one session a week. And the reason I said it was good that it ended up being off work was because I would do the session and I was down for like two days. Processing, sleeping, I was dead. Like I couldn't do anything. I'd go home, I'd lay on the couch. Um, Michael would grab the kids, come home. 
I'd sit there and, you know, read books with them, do what I could to be mom. Um, but they gave me, a, he gave me, Michael gave me a lot of space and really took on the role of mom and dad at that time. So that was amazing of him. So you, you do eight sessions and yep. I mean, how do you feel like, right? Do, do you notice the change as you go or is it, or is it gradual after the eight sessions? I noticed the change as I went. So um, one of the big things that I kept getting affected by was in my own personal driving. I'd be driving down the road, and if a car kind came up in the peripheral of my right side, I would literally almost have a panic attack. Like if they were coming up to a stop sign, I'd almost have a panic attack while driving um, because I, you know, that's what happened, and I got hit in a second. And so one thing with EMDR she was able to do was we worked through that trigger and like as soon as we got done with that trigger like that didn't happen again very very rarely maybe once or twice i've had it but like it was every time a car came up in my peripheral on the right side that i was almost going into a panic driving so do you, so i mean it's quick but it's it's also progressive over time and do you do you i don't know do you attack a trigger each time or is it or is it a or is it the is it the same trigger multiple times? Is it a different trigger each time? How does that work? That was the only specific one. Like I, she asked me what, what bothers you the most. And I said, that was the most specific one I had. I had a lot of questions. Like I doubted myself a lot. Like if I would have gotten into that ambulance, I could have saved their lives. Like I could have, I should have helped them. Um, and so that was one thing that I, the survivor's guilt and the guilt I had after that was horrible. And what, EMDR does is for me anyway I had I did the handheld vibration in both hands and it stimulates both sides of your brain at the same time for those that have not experienced it and she told me pick every your brain stores memories in a snapshot so you'll have the same snapshot for a memory that your brain stores away and every time it pulls up that memory that's the snapshot that it starts at she said what's the snapshot from the accident and um I, I think it was like right as the dump truck was hitting us, that was when I, my snapshot. And so she said, okay, picture yourself in the movie theater. Take that snapshot and put it up on the movie screen and just let it play. So I'd have my eyes closed and it was so weird. It was like I was like a third person, not actually there, just witnessing everything as a third person. So I, when I started, I was sitting behind myself. I could see myself driving and uh see what happened and so like when my partner reached out you know said hey can I have that slip of paper his shoulder or his arm reached over my shoulder and I saw myself hand it to him and like the whole accident played like that and so it basically it just desensitizes it to you so like every time you run through all this you should be more more desensitized and one thing, the huge, probably the biggest thing it did for me was as I was playing through this one day um, during the session, I was standing as a third party on the side of the ambulance up above everybody. So you know how like the ambulance was flipped over its side. I was standing where I came out of the ambulance on the passenger door. I could see myself sitting on the tailgate and I could see everybody running around doing it, what it was they were doing that day. But I saw them have to cut open the truck. And it just clicked for me at that point, like they couldn't get into it without power tools. So there's absolutely no way you could have gone in, gotten in with your own bare hands. 
And like that day, the guilt that I felt of not getting in there and helping them was just lifted off my shoulders and taken away. And it's just, I, I can't even really explain it. Like it sounds crazy hearing it like you're a third person watching yourself, but it works and it's intense and it's good. Yeah. I mean, I, I can hear it in your voice as you, as you talk about it. And so that, that just tells me what the experience was like for you. Mm-hmm. So yeah. w- where are you today with it all? Uh, I haven't done therapy since. Um, I still use the box that she told me about. I still use that coping mechanism. I run a lot and I listen to a lot of music and the days where I have to process and just let myself feel, I'll throw my earbuds, I'll turn on my music, I'll open the box and I'll run for miles and just let it process and let it feel. The sucky thing is I have the grief of the accident and losing my friend and then a year later I have the hit of losing my career. So it's, um, it's a lot. It's been a, it's been a hard two, two years. Well, well, let's talk about the career part again. Cause you, yeah. you, you lost, you, you lost the career with that, with that, with, with that company, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm still a paramedic. I, right. I work casually, but like when I say I lost the career, like my goal and my, my goal was to be the director of that company and to run that company in the way that I thought best. And, um, and maybe become the owner that was opening up an option as an option as well. And that's not going to happen now. Okay. So, so, so what's your plan? What's your plan for the future for yourself now? Um, I am currently in RN school. I started in January and I graduate in December. Okay. So you, you've, you've got steps forward. Yeah. Yep. I do. Um, it's weird. I, I call it, I'm crossing over to the dark side. We're going to make a lot more money and have a lot better schedule and not have the toxic manipulation and just. So the few months before I quit at that company, it was bad. I went back. So I had gone back on workman's cop in January. I did EMDR and we moved houses. We bought a new house. And um, after EMDR, I felt great. Like I felt like a new person. Um, was doing really well and got my okay to go back. I think it was in May. And yeah, May 9th, I went back. Um, during that April, I'd gone on a couple trips. I went to Las Vegas with Michael. And then I went to Mexico with my best friend who, who was married to the partner that died and some of our guy friends who we grew up in EMS with. We all kind of started around the same time and we, they're like brothers to us. And this trip was about healing, about us two you know, still being friends after such a traumatic thing and getting getting to a place where we were okay. That's what the trip was about. We had a great time. It was an amazing time. I had never been to Mexico before and it was wonderful. And then I came back and went to work May 9th and the decline of my mental health as soon as I went back was outstanding. Like I had, it was insane. I got back that day and I got a text message from my boss I'm going to drink my coffee and I'll talk to you after that. Like, I just got the cold shoulder when I got back. Looking back now, it was all the manipulation of that one supervisor. Um, just changing what, you know, changing any anything and everything. It didn't even have to be a big deal. He'd go to her and manipulate the situation and lie about me. And, um, and so I went back to work and was supposed to be a supervisor again and got told this place ran really smoothly while you were gone and now I don't know what to do with you so you're gonna have to be patient and worked went to work for 
must have been two, three weeks without anything to do. Literally sat at a desk, wasn't allowed to go on calls, wasn't allowed to be a supervisor. So I just started doing CEUs and filling my time with uh, recertifying. And then um, the director came into the office one day and she was, all right, well, we're going to bring you down the basement and test you out, make sure you're competent still and can still be a paramedic. And I looked at her and was like, are you kidding me? And she goes, nope, this is what's going to happen. And I said, well, it sounds like you're discriminating against the mental health aspect and the fact that, you know, it's discrimination. Nobody else gets tested like that. They don't even test people when they hire them. And I'd gone out on maternity leave for the same amount of time twice and never got tested. And I, you know, not to pat myself on the back, but I've been in the been in this career for, you know, 10 years. I know what I'm doing. I can handle myself. And um, that was just really degrading to me. And I got pretty mad. I walked out. I called my QRC, told her what was going on. And she was shocked that I was not put back on full duty because I guess it's, I don't know if it's, she didn't say it was illegal, but because I was given the doctor's note saying I could go back to full duty, I should have been allowed to. And they didn't do that until it was convenient for them. Then when they needed somebody to cover the supervisor shift, that's when I went back. And there is a meeting one day where they were handing me over something to do with the education program. But at the end of it, the supervisor goes, so are you good? Are you loyal or something? It's just something really flippant. And I was like, what do you mean am I loyal? And he just like went off about how horrible I'd been, how I was not a good person. I wasn't the person I was before. And it was he, myself, and the director sitting in the office. And he looked at me and he, the words that came out of his mouth, it still shocks me to this day. He said, the day of the accident was so insignificant for me that they had to come and get me to run their company because you can't anymore. So I looked at the director at that time. She looked me in the eye, and I'm sure they'll all deny this. I I went home and wrote that statement down that day so I wouldn't forget it. I wrote it down word for word. They'll deny it because they deny everything and they never admit when they're wrong. But I wrote it down, and that's what he said. And she looked me in the eye, and I knew as soon as she looked me in the eye that I was done there because. She didn't say anything that she didn't. That day was almost just as significant to her because she was there. She wasn't in the accident, but she was there. And the fact that she didn't defend that or like come to my aid at that comment, I knew I was done there. I started looking for a different job and um, I ended up leaving and just taking a CNA job at the hospital. That's how desperate I was to get out of there. And literally the day I walked out of there, the weight that came off my shoulders was insane and I just felt so much better and you know as a firefighter and in this industry like going to a CNA that's sucky (laughs) that's really sucky but I worked with great people I did it for a few months and then I decided you know I'm going to RN school and I picked up a casual job as a paramedic uh, for one of the neighboring neighboring towns I've got great bosses there it's a great great place to work it's not nearly as busy so I mean at this point in my career I'm okay with that I don't need to run my ass off on nursing home calls I'm okay with that but it's 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 a good service to work for Uh, I don't know I'm sure I'll still stay on casually for a while once I'm done with nursing because I still love to be a paramedic I can still do the job whether they believe it or not and think I'm not competent I can still do it and I still want to. Uh, I'm sad that I'm not doing it full time. Like I said, I'm grieving that pretty hardcore still. Um, but 
I think what's coming will be good for our family. We're excited. Um, I'll be able to spend more time with my kids and my husband. And I think it'll be good. I'm excited for it. So once you graduate, what's your plan? Well, I really want to be OB. I've always been the freak that likes to catch babies in the back of an ambulance. I've been close a couple times, but never, never actually got to. But I'd really like to do OB and I'd probably work in the ER for a while. Just to still get that emergency side of it. So we, do you think you'll ever, do you think you'll run as a paramedic as well or part-time? Or do you think that you're done with that now? I think I will for a while. Um, they just recently switched. So it's not 24 hour shifts where I work anymore that you can pick 12 or 18. And I really like the 12 hour day shift part of it. I don't have to run the transfers at night. I'm okay with that. I'm to the point in my career where transfers at night aren't my thing. So the 12 hour day shift, I really enjoy. So I feel like I'll probably keep doing that for a while. Um, as long as I'm, it's not impeding with my family life. One thing I learned through all of this is one of the biggest things for first responders is we always identify as a first responder. We identi- I identified myself as a paramedic. I identified myself as a supervisor. And the accident really put into perspective what life is about. It can end in a second. And my life right now is my family. It's my kids. It's spending time with them. I work to pay for my life. I don't I don't live to work anymore. And it's been really freeing. It's been really wonderful. Um, I had, I've had a great, great time with my kids over the last, it'll be a year on July 7th that I quit that job. And, you know, the, the depth that I've gained with my kids, because I've been an EMS since they were born, since before they were born. So that's all they've ever known. And um, the depth that I've gotten with my family has been really good for me. And that's invaluable. So. Right. I mean, yep. there's a, there's a silver lining, I suppose. Yes. So when I say that only bad has come from it, I, I was wrong. We've already gotten good from it, but I still want there to be more. And I think there will be someday. All right. So let's get on to the last two questions. Yeah. And I, you, you're well aware of, cause I think you have them written down already. So I don't think you're going to, I'm not catching you off guard at all here. Uh, (laughs) And I haven't, I don't know if I've explained it in a bit, so I'll I'll kind of explain it again for people that the reason I call the show, the things we all carry is it's a coworker brought it to my attention that it should be that the book by Tim O'Brien and I had read a while ago, but he brought it, he brought it back to my attention and said, this might have something to do with it. And the, the book was called the things they carried. And it's a, it's a novel kind of a novel set in Vietnam about a platoon that goes in and out of battle and, and what they carry into battle and then the, the scars and the emotions they carry out of it. It, it That's kind of the easy way of, of giving a synopsis. So I take that and I, I titled the show, The Things We All Carry. And so what I like to do is ask people, what's something that you carry every day? So an everyday carry that if you leave home without, you feel naked. Yeah. So I carry two things and I've already mentioned that I love music. And the one thing that I always have on me is earbuds so that I can pop them in and listen to music anytime. If you know me at all and you have been on shift with me and I don't have earbuds, I'm not in a good place. Uh, so I always have earbuds. And then the second one that I kind of mentioned it earlier, but didn't want to give it a whiff. So when I first became a paramedic and it was the black cloud time and I was just going on critical call after critical call. One of my good friends who was an EMT at the time, he's a paramedic now, um, but he was my partner a lot. And so he got to experience these calls with me and he goes, he ordered me a challenge coin and it is the Reaper on one side and the EMS symbol on the other. 
And the joke is we flip it to see how the day goes. And it was pretty accurate. Like if I flipped the Reaper, we were having a critical day. And if I flipped EMS, it was, it was pretty easy day. Um, so I always have that in my pocket on shift. Okay. I, that's, uh, that's original and, and I, I yeah. love it. Uh, <laughs> and, and I would love to see the, uh, what the, what the odds were and how, how accurate it was. Well, there was one time I'll tell this really quick story. We had a student on, I pulled it out of my pocket to show the student this coin because they were talking about it. And when I pulled it out, it fell out of my pocket, landed on Reaper. And within a second, we got paged to a death. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, it's I, just I, a funny story. It's, <laughs> uh, we all we all believe in that luck. We all believe in the the jinxing a jinxing a, a, a shift. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> yesterday we were coming home from a call in, in the truck and my lieutenant says, uh, man, you know what? We just don't run much of here. And he goes, we haven't oh, run, no. we haven't run many CPRs lately. And I was like, why oh, would no. you, why would you say that? He goes, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Well, the, the last call we ran last night was a CPR. So I just of looked at, I looked at him in the middle of, it. I said, you brought this on us. So this is all your fault. So thanks. <laughs> thanks, Matt. Thanks. Most superstitious bunch you'll ever meet. Right. Yeah. So, all right. So let's get to a book. What, yeah. Do you have a book you want to recommend for the audience? Something that just brings some value or some entertainment? I do. So um, I said before, I grew up in a Christian home. I have the relationship with Jesus. I know not everybody does. So if you don't, this probably isn't for you. Um, but one thing that's been very pivotal for me in my growth through the last two years is I read a book called Forgiving What You Can't Forget by Lisa Turkers. And it just talks about forgiving. And the last year that I've had to deal with the loss of my career and the toxic people that I had to deal with. Uh, it talks about forgiveness isn't for that person. It's to make it so that your heart isn't becoming angry and bitter. And it's just a really good read. It's short, um, but I think it's pivotal that we learn to just let things go. And so we don't become bitter and angry people because I don't want to be a bitter and angry person. That's perfect. Awesome. That's that's not one that's been suggested before on the show. And so that'll that's that's also I will throw it in the show notes and everybody can take a look for it. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. That's uh yeah, thank you. That's a hell of a story. And uh, I'm happy to hear where you are today and, and looking forward to hearing more about you when you when you get through nursing school and, and you guys decide where, where you're gonna go with trying to make a difference in, in people's lives. Good, thank you. So go ahead and go enjoy the rest of your day and, and uh, take care of yourself, all right? All right, sounds good. All Thank right. you. We'll talk to you later. Yep. We're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other. <laughs>